Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host, Paul, and this is episode 192. Our first story this week comes from the telegraph.co.uk website and it's written by Robert Lee Pemberton. Is witchcraft really on the rise? A study of magic in Britain since 1800 overstates its case, but superstition lives on, says Robert Lee Pemberton. The Swahili witch doctor installed in rooms off the Edgware Road by the War Ministry to cast spells on members of the Nazi High Command was no more than a fantasy in Evelyn Waugh's bleakly comic Sword of Honour trilogy. Yet the last prosecution under the 1735 Witchcraft Act did in fact take place in 1944 amid a minor panic that the Scottish medium Helen Duncan had been revealing sensitive military information during seances. Churchill described the prosecution as tomfoolery. Duncan was later unmasked as a fraud, with a particular talent for the manufacture of ectoplasm, from cheesecloth, egg whites and toilet paper. Though such esoteric precautions are understandable during wartime, In any case, the practice and prosecution of witchcraft has persisted throughout the modern era. In 1838, for instance, an Essex woman was imprisoned for the boiling alive of her vicar's cat, with all due dread solemnities. Most shocking and upsetting is the fact that the Met Police's Project Violet, established in 2005 to investigate belief-based child abuse, often related to suspicions of witchcraft or possession in sub-Saharan immigrant communities, has seen a steady increase in the number of cases reported, 60 in the first 10 months of 2015 alone. These stories are related in Thomas Waters' Cursed Britain, a history of witchcraft and black magic in modern times. Picking it up in 1800, almost exactly where Keith Thomas's masterful religion and the decline of magic left off, Waters contends that witchcraft, having suffered a decline, has been on the rise since the mid-20th century. This part of his thesis is controversial, that there is little doubt that magic in diverse forms is deep-rooted in the British Isles and once held absolute sway. In the medieval and early modern periods, Thomas suggested even the rural clergy were merrily complicit in their parishioners' superstitions. There are numerous 16th and 17th century accounts of pets and farm animals being extended the sacrament of baptism as a charm for good health and fecundity. Malevolent sorcery too was conducted within a largely Christian framework. 
1543, it was with a recited paternoster and holy candle dropped upon burning dung of a young maid named Elizabeth Selsay, that a witch of Canterbury, envious of Elizabeth's useful grace, sought to make the cule, that is the buttocks, of the said maid divide into two parts. One cynical Elizabethan summed up the blurred lines between magic and faith with the axiom that the Pope canoniseth the rich for saints and banneth the poor for witches. The growth of a more reasoned form of Christianity finally cut the occult adrift from faith and condemned it to relative obscurity. But as Waters demonstrates, this process was by no means total and it was certainly not sudden. Even in the brightest moments of the Enlightenment, a great deal hid in the shadows. Isaac Newton, for instance, conducted secret alchemical experiments throughout his life. John Maynard Keynes described him not as the first great scientist, but as the last great magician. Cunning men and wise women, the practitioners of white magic and defenders against curses, kept up a brisk trade until the 19th century. They provided a range of services to their communities, from curse-lifting, fortune-telling and black magic, to practical and even medical advice, particularly in rural areas where more scientific services could be hard to come by. George Pickingill, the last cunning man in Essex, lived until 1909. By then, however, this venerable trade was leaning towards the ludicrous, Before his death in 1890, Billy Brewer, a cunning man of Somerset, was known for sporting an abundance of rings, a large grey wig and a sombrero. What followed was a terminal decline in the older forms of witchcraft. The 20th century revival of magic is a separate phenomenon, the product of a permissive society that no longer sees esoteric practices as actively dangerous. Modern witchcraft may, like the religion of Wicca, the only codified faith to originate in Britain, with 7,000 adherents at the 2001 census, claim archaic associations. But most historians who have taken an impartial look at the history of these movements agree that such claims are spurious. Neo-paganism, whose influences range from ecology to nudism, is a thoroughly modern phenomenon. Waters, keen to demonstrate that magic has been more widespread than most historians acknowledge, does not always convince. He relies too heavily on isolated newspaper reports without crediting their tendency to sensationalise. Dracula Authenticated declared the Western Morning News in 1930. His information is often presented in a slapdash fashion. Endless lists of persecutions, prosecutions and accusations are laid out, but rarely analysed. The phrases judged one critic and, as one commentator observed, abound. I went to see the cunning man and he was very mysterious-like. One chapter begins, but we never learn who said these words. Nevertheless, it is a bold step into very murky water. The amount of material Waters has unearthed is impressive, especially given the deliberate invisibility of witchcraft's practitioners. His book is a salutary reminder that the modern world is not immune to superstition. As the Elizabethan theologian William Perkins pointed out, we go to the physician for counsel, we take his recipe, but we know not what it meaneth, yet we use it and find benefit. May we not as well take benefit by the wise man whose courses we are ignorant of. And if you're interested in that book, there is a link to it contained in the show notes. And the show notes are at patreon.com forward slash Paul Rex. You don't have to be a patron to access these show notes as this is an episode available to all. Worth a look if you're interested.
From the historyextra.com William Wallace Who was the Scottish rebel who defied Edward I? Legendary Scottish hero William Wallace, the rebellious thorn in the side of Edward I of England, was a man of murky origins. When you think of the Scottish hero William Wallace, you'd be forgiven for first imagining actor Mel Gibson covered in blue paint and crying, Freedom! However loved the 1995 film Braveheart is, it gives little away about the true story of the lionised Scottish rebel. Wallace's execution on the 23rd of August, 1305, is of the most gruesome variety. Found guilty of treason, he was taken to the Tower of London, where he was stripped, tied to a hurdle and dragged through the streets by horses. He was then hanged, drawn and quartered, with his bowels burnt before him. Precipitating this grisly death were years of leading the first organised resistance against English rule in Scotland. In the early 13th century, Scotland had been a peaceful country under the rule of Alexander III. Following his death in 1286, the crown passed to Margaret, the maid of Norway, a three-year-old. Her sudden demise in 1290 plunged the country into turmoil. To avoid a civil war, Edward I of England was asked to arbitrate for the Scottish nobles competing for the throne, which he did. But then he set about undermining the authority of the chosen monarch, John Balliol. In 1296, the King of England invaded. William Wallace is a man of murky origins, but by this time he probably had military experience, possibly in Edward's Welsh campaign. His first documented act of defiance was the killing of a sheriff in May 1297. One 15th century poem of dubious veracity suggests the killing of Wallace's wife was the catalyst for this. He then joined with other military leaders in skirmishes against English forces and by September won a pitched battle at Stirling Bridge despite being vastly outnumbered. Now proven as a competent military leader, Wallace was subsequently appointed as Guardian of Scotland. The de facto head of state, Balliol had been forced to abdicate in 1296. Wallace would battle Edward I's army again at Falkirk, a devastating defeat that led to him resigning as Guardian. His movements after this are unclear, but it's believed he travelled to the continent to seek support for the Scottish cause. In 1303, many of his countrymen submitted to Edward as their overlord, but Wallace refused to do so. On the 5th of August 1305, a Scottish knight loyal to Edward, John de Menteith, turned Wallace over to soldiers at Rob Royston. Tried for treason, with no jury, lawyers or the chance to defend himself, he was found guilty. He denied the charges, saying, I could not be a traitor to Edward, for I was never his subject. After his execution, his head was placed on a spike on London Bridge, while his limbs were displayed across the land. His life has since been romanticised in literature, as well as on the silver screen. Today he's seen as the true spirit of Scottish independence. And from the SmithsonianMag.com, a story by David Vermitt. When an influx of French-Canadian immigrants struck fear into Americans. In the late 19th century, they came to work in New England cotton mills. But the New York Times, among others, saw something more sinister. In 1893... Claire de Graffenried 
special agent of the United States Department of Labor, published an article in the forum describing an invasion of America's northeastern border. For 30 years, Graffenreid observed hundreds of thousands of French Canadians had been pouring into states like Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts and Rhode Island, finding work in the region's burgeoning industries. Manufacturing New England, Puritan and homogeneous no longer, speaks a French patois, she wrote. Furthermore, Graffenreid continued... French-Canadian workers huddled in Little Canadas of hastily constructed tenements in houses holding from three to fifty families, subsisting in conditions that were a reproach to civilization, while inspiring fear and aversion in neighbours. Within the two years after Graffenreid's piece appeared, both of my grandfathers were born in Maine's Little Canadas. A century later, when I began researching these roots, I uncovered a lost chapter in US immigration history that has startling relevance today. A story of immigrants crossing a land border into the US and the fears they aroused. Inheriting an ideology of cultural survival from Quebec, the French Canadians in the US resisted assimilation. This led a segment of the American elite to regard these culturally isolated French speakers as a potential threat to the territorial integrity of the United States. Pawns, conspiracy theorists said, in a Catholic plot to subvert the US Northeast. While French-speaking people had lived in North America since the 1600s, the French-Canadians Graffenry discussed crossed the US border during the late 19th century, mainly to earn a living in New England's cotton mills. Cotton textile manufacturing began in earnest in the region during the War of 1812, and by mid-century it was the US's largest industry in terms of employment, capital investment and the value of its products. When the United States blockaded Confederate ports during the Civil War and prices for raw cotton soared, New England's mills shut down or slashed hours. Textile workers turned towards other industries, joined the army or headed west. After the war with cotton shipping again, the mills reopened, but the skilled textile workforce had scattered. The corporations launched a campaign to recruit workers, and Canada's French-speaking province of Quebec answered the call. Before the Civil War, there had been a trickle of migration from Quebec to the northern states. But when the hostilities ended, trainload upon trainload of French Canadians began to settle in neighbouring New England. By 1930, nearly a million had crossed the border in search for work. They arrived in extended family groups, establishing French-speaking enclaves throughout New England in small industrial cities like Lowell, Massachusetts, Manchester, New Hampshire, Woonsocket, Rhode Island, Lewiston, Maine and elsewhere. These little Canadas, often wedged between a mill and a Catholic church, formed a cultural archipelago. Outposts of Quebec scattered throughout the northeast in densely populated pockets. By 1900, one tenth of New Englanders spoke French, and in the region's many cotton mills, French Canadians made up 44% of the workforce, 24% nationally, at a time when cotton remained a dominant industry. French-Canadian workers often lived in overcrowded, company-owned tenements, while children as young as eight-year-old worked full shifts in the mills. Contemporary observers denounced the mill-town squalor. When 44 French-Canadian children died in Brunswick, Maine, during a six-month period in 1886, most from typhoid fever and diphtheria, local newspaper editor Albert G. Tenney investigated. He found tenements housing 500 people per acre with outhouses that overflowed into the wells and basements. Tenney excoriated the mill owners, 
the prominent Cabot family of Boston. Conditions in the tenements, wrote Tenney, show a degree of brutality almost inconceivable in a civilised community. A sight even to make a Christian swear. Brunswick was not the only mill town with poor living conditions. Journalist William Bayard Hale visited Little Canada in Fall River, Massachusetts in 1894. It would be an abuse to house a dog in such a place, Hale wrote. Some Fall River tenements, continued Hale, do not compare favourably with old-time slave quarters, a not-so-distant memory in the 1890s. Other immigrants also faced pitiable conditions, but the French Canadians were unique because they thought of themselves as Americans before they came to the US. The French Canadian is American as someone born in Boston, said Civil War hero Edmund Mallet. It is all the nationalities that emigrated here that truly constitutes the American people. Mallet was a part of the small, educated French-Canadian elite in the US, which included priests, journalists, professionals and business owners. In their view, American was not a nationality but a collection of all the nationalities, living under the stars and stripes. In keeping with this understanding, they coined a new term for their people living in the US, Franco-Americans. Franco-American journalist Ferdinand Gagnon argued in an 1881 hearing at the Massachusetts State House that French Canadians were among the original constituent elements of the American public. He cited Langlade, the father of Wisconsin, Juno, the founder of Milwaukee, Vital Guerin, the founder of St. Paul, Menard, the first lieutenant governor of Illinois, among his compatriots who had founded nearly all the large cities of the western states. While Gagnon encouraged French Canadians to pursue US citizenship, for him naturalisation implied a narrow contract. If naturalised citizens obeyed the laws, defended the flag and worked for the general prosperity, he felt their duties were discharged. Language, religion and customs could remain in the private sphere. Gagnon's concept of citizenship was based on Quebec's history, where French Canadians had maintained a distinct cultural identity despite British rules in 1763. The Franco-American elite expected their people to maintain their identity in the US, just as they had done in Canada. But US opinion demanded of the naturalised citizen something more than a merely formal participation in civic life. And Franco-American efforts to preserve their culture soon aroused suspicion and enmity. By the 1880s, elite American newspapers, including the New York Times, saw a sinister plot afoot. The Catholic Church, they said, had dispatched French-Canadian workers southward in a bid to seize control of New England. Eventually, the theory went, Quebec would sever its British ties and annex New England to a new nation-state called New France. Alarmists presented as evidence for the demographic threat the seemingly endless influx of immigrants across the northeastern border, coupled with the large family size of the Franco-Americans, where 10 or 12 children was common and many more not unknown. Anti-Catholicism had deep roots in the northeast. The region's Revolution-era patriots had numbered the Quebec Act of 1774 among the British Parliament's intolerable acts, not least because it upheld the Catholic Church's privileges in Canada, establishing popery in North America. In the mid-19th century, supporters of the Know Nothing movement led attacks on Catholic neighbourhoods from New York City to Philadelphia. In New England, among other incidents... A know-nothing-inspired mob burned a church where Irish and French-Canadian Catholics met at Bath, Maine, in July 1854. In October of that year, Catholic priest John Baptist was assaulted, robbed, tarred and feathered and driven out of Ellsworth, Maine. While the know-nothings faded away, in the late 19th century, 
the nativists regrouped as the American Protective Association, a nationwide anti-Catholic movement. In this climate, the supposed French-Canadian Catholic subversion of New England became national news. Between about 1880 and 1900, as immigration peaked, it attracted coverage in daily newspapers. Think pieces and outlets such as Harper's, The Nation and The Forum, articles in academic journals and books in English and in French. The New York Times reported in 1881 that French-Canadian immigrants were ignorant and unenterprising, subservient to the most bigoted class of Catholic priests in the world. They care nothing for our free institutions, have no desire for civil or religious liberty or the benefits of education. In 1885, the paper reported that there were French-Canadian plans to form a new France occupying the whole northeast corner of the continent. Four years later, it outlined the purported borders of New France. Quebec, Ontario, as far west as Hamilton, such portions of the maritime provinces as may be deemed worth taking, the New England states and a slice of New York. And in 1892, the New York Times suggested that emigration from Quebec was part of a priestly scheme now fervently fostered in Canada for the purpose of bringing New England under the control of the Roman Catholic faith. This is the avowed purpose of the secret society to which every adult French-Canadian belongs. Protestant clergy responded by leading well-funded initiatives to convert the Franco-American Catholics. The Congregationalists, Calvin E. Ameron founded the French Protestant College in Massachusetts in 1885, offering a training course for evangelising the French Canadians of New England and Quebec. Baptist missionaries fielded the Gospel Wagon, a hefty horse-drawn vehicle with organ and pulpit lit by lanterns at night, preaching Protestantism in French to the little Canadas of Massachusetts and New England. New England had become a magnet attracting the world to itself. Quebec is repellent and shunned by the world's best blood, thundered the Baptist's Henry Lyman Morehouse in an 1893 pamphlet. The one a mighty current that has been as the water of life to the civilised world the other a sluggish, slimy stream that has fructified nothing and given to mankind nothing noteworthy, a civilization where medieval Romanism is rampant against the abhorrent forces of this Romish civilization we are contending, especially in New England. Ameron and Morehouse identified Protestantism with Americanism, For them, it was unthinkable that the U.S. could accommodate a variety of religious traditions and yet retain its political culture. In retrospect, the fevered discourse about New England's class of destitute factory workers reveals how little chattering classes in the U.S. knew their neighbours. A people whose presence in North America preceded Plymouth Rock The invasion rhetoric did not discourage Franco-American sentiments in favour of maintaining their identity, but intensified them. The Little Canadas continued in vigour for at least another half-century and slowly dispersed, not due to nativist provocations, but for economic reasons, the decline of New England's manufacturing base. Talk of a French-Canadian threat waned in the first years of the 20th century as migration across the northeastern border slowed temporarily. This Victorian episode faded from memory only when US fears were transferred to new subjects. The even more foreign-seeming Jewish and non-Protestant immigrants from southern and eastern Europe who, in the early 20th century, began to arrive in growing numbers on US shores.
and from the Atlantic.com website, a story by Rachel Goodman. The mystery of Skeleton Lake gets deeper. Hundreds of skeletons are scattered around a site high in the Himalayas, and a new study overturns a leading theory about how they got there. In a kinder world, archaeologists would study only formal cemeteries, carefully planned and undisturbed. No landslides would have scattered the remains. No passers-by would have taken them home as souvenirs, or stacked them into cans, or made off with the best of the artefacts. And all of this certainly wouldn't be happening far away from any evidence of human habitation under the surface of a frozen glacial lake. But such an ideal burial ground wouldn't have the eerie appeal of Skeleton Lake in Uttarakhand, India, where researchers suspect the bones of as many as 500 people lie. The lake, which is formerly known as Rupkund, is miles above the sea level in the Himalayas and sits along the route of the Nanda Devi Rajat, a famous festival and pilgrimage. Bones are scattered throughout the site. Not a single skeleton found so far is intact. Since a forest ranger stumbled across the ghostly scene during World War II, explanations for why hundreds of people died there have abounded. These unfortunates were invading Japanese soldiers. They were an Indian army returning from the war. They were a king and his party of dancers, struck down by a religious deity. A few years ago, a group of archaeologists suggested, after inspecting the bones and dating the carbon within them, that the dead were travellers caught in a lethal hailstorm around the 9th century. In a new study published today in Nature Communications, an international team of more than two dozen archaeologists geneticists and other specialists dated and analysed the DNA from the bones of 37 individuals found at Rupkund. They were able to suss out new details about these people, but if anything, their findings make the story of this place even more complex. The team determined that the majority of the deceased indeed died a thousand or so years ago, but not simultaneously. And a few died much more recently, likely in the early 1800s. Stranger still, the skeleton's genetic makeup is more typical of Mediterranean heritage than South Asian. It may be even more of a mystery than before, says David Reich, a geneticist at Harvard and one of the senior authors of the new paper. It was unbelievable because the type of ancestry we find in about a third of the individuals is so unusual for this part of the world. Rupkund is the sort of place archaeologists call problematic and extremely disturbed. Mountaineers have moved and removed the bones and researchers suspect most of the valuable artefacts. Landslides probably scattered the skeletons too. Miriam Stark, an archaeologist at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, who was not involved in the research, pointed out that, unlike most archaeological sites, Rupkund is not within a cultural context, like a religious site or even a battlefield. That makes the new study a really useful case study of how much information you can milk from an imperfect data set, she says. From a scientific standpoint, the only convenient thing about Rupkund is its frigid environment, which preserved not only the bones, but the DNA inside them, and even in some cases, bits of clothing and flesh. That same environment can make the site difficult to study. Veena Mushrif Tripathi, an archaeologist at Deakin College in Pune, India, was part of an expedition to Rupkund in 2003. She says that even at base camp, which was about 2,300 feet below the lake, the weather was dangerous and turned quickly. To reach Rupkund, the party had to climb to a ridge above the lake and then slide down to it, because the slopes surrounding this lake are so steep. 
Mushrif Tripathi never actually reached the lake. She was stuck at base camp with altitude sickness. That was one of my biggest regrets, she says. Still today, I am not over that. As Fernando Racimo, a geneticist at the University of Copenhagen, points out, ancient DNA studies commonly focus on the global movements of human populations over thousands of years. The new study, in contrast, is a nice example of how ancient DNA studies could not only inform us about major migration events, Racimo says, but it can also tell smaller stories that would have not been possible to elucidate otherwise. Stark says that seeing geneticists and archaeologists collaborating to ask nuanced questions is refreshing. A lot of the time it seems like the geneticists are performing just a service, she says, to prove the hunches of anthropologists or historical linguists about where a specimen really came from. And that's not what we should be asking. To Kathleen Morrison, the Chair of Anthropology Department at the University of Pennsylvania, the least interesting thing about the specimens at Rupkund is where in the world their DNA says they came from. She points out that a Hellenic kingdom existed in the Indian subcontinent for about 200 years, beginning in 180 BC. The fact that there's some unknown group of Mediterranean European people is not really a big revelation, she says. She also cautions that radiocarbon dating gets less and less accurate the closer specimens get to the present day. So the early 1800s date assigned to the Rupkund specimens with Mediterranean heritage might not be perfectly accurate. Besides, knowing that some of the bones at Rupkund came from a slightly unusual population still doesn't shake the fundamental mystery how hundreds of people's remains ended up at one remote mountain lake. Reich and Mushrif Tripathi are both confident that the skeletons were not moved to the site. Mushrif Tripathi believes that the people whose bones she helped study simply lost their way and got stuck near the lake during bad weather. As Reich points out, it's possible that remains scattered around the area gradually fell in the lake during landslides. Morrison, though, doesn't fully buy this explanation. I suspect that they're aggregated there, that local people put them in the lake, she says. When you see a lot of human skeletons, usually it's a graveyard. And if you visit the show notes at patreon.com forward slash Paul Rex and click on the link to episode 192 of the Mysteries Abound podcast show notes, and then on the link to this article, there is a photograph of some of the remains and a photograph of the lake. And it's certainly a rugged, isolated place. And from the epochtimes.com website, a story by Evan Mantic. And this one's certainly an enduring mystery. The Holy Grail, behind the most famous King Arthur quest. The Holy Grail. What is it? Today you can call something the Holy Grail of fill in the blank. You can fill in any field here. And the holy grail of it means something that is very hard to find, but is highly valuable in that field. Red diamonds are the rarest and may be called the holy grail of jewels or diamonds. The Carolina Reaper is now considered the hottest pepper in the world. It is relatively difficult to grow and hard to find, so we might call it the holy grail of peppers. But what is the Holy Grail itself? Based on legend, it is the cup that Jesus Christ drank from during the famous Last Supper, the night before the day he was arrested and killed. It is the same Last Supper that was made into a painting by Leonardo da Vinci and has become one of the most cherished paintings in the world. 
According to the legend, this same cup was used to catch the blood of Jesus while he was hanging on the cross the next day. After Jesus' death, one of his twelve disciples, named Joseph of Arimathea, brought the Holy Grail to England, where it was lost. Not counting recent Holy Grail-related books and movies, such as those featuring Indiana Jones or the writings of Dan Brown, the Holy Grail really gained its place in the popular imagination through the half-mythical King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table, who are believed to have lived about one and a half thousand years ago. They were renowned for their bravery, their chivalry and their many great adventures. The quest for the Holy Grail has become their greatest and most well-known quest. But why? The Legend The legend begins with King Arthur and his knights sitting together at the round table in Camelot, where they suddenly heard a crash of thunder, according to Sir Thomas Mallory's Le Mort Arthur. There they see an incredibly bright light that leaves everyone speechless, for it is so bright that they can see each other as they have never seen each other before. A wonderful fragrance also fills the hall, and an image of the grail appears as if covered in a silky white cloth, which they can't touch. After it disappears, Sir Gawain initiates the quest to obtain the Holy Grail. King Arthur opposes the quest, knowing it will bring much suffering to his knights. He says to Gawain, For when they depart from here, I am sure they all shall never meet again in this world, for many shall die in the quest. However, perilous quests are what knights undertake by their nature, so King Arthur is helpless in stopping them from going. Before the knights leave, a mysterious old knight, clothed like a monk, shows up and says, I warn you plainly, he that is not clean of his sins shall not see the mysteries of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it becomes clear that the quest for the Holy Grail is not an ordinary sort of quest to prove one's fighting abilities or fight for the king's honour. Rather, it is a spiritual quest meant for cultivating oneself. The Knights of the Round Table go separate ways in search of the Grail. One of the first adventures that some of the knights have is to defeat seven evil knights who have a castle full of women whom they have captured and kept imprisoned. Sir Gawain says that these seven knights represent the seven deadly sins, which are, in the Christian tradition, anger, laziness, overeating, greed, lust, arrogance and jealousy. In searching for the grail, these knights must resist such sins and look inside themselves for impurities. As often as they engage in fights, they pray to God, confess their sins and promise to do better. Knights Battle Within On the quest, the knight known as the greatest warrior, Sir Lancelot, encounters the Holy Grail in a half-awake and half-dream state. He tries to lift it, but cannot. His failure, he realises, is because his heart is not pure. Afterward, Lancelot confesses to a hermit that he has had inappropriate thoughts about King Arthur's queen, Guinevere. He confesses, All my great deeds in battle that I have done, I did for the most part for the Queen's sake, and for her sake would go into battle whether it was right or wrong, and never did I battle only for God's sake. He earnestly promises to mend his ways. Sir Percival, wandering on his own, is rescued from starvation by a beautiful damsel who, though rich, has been disowned and needs his protection. He becomes madly in love with her, but just before he is about to satisfy his desires with her, he catches sight of a holy symbol attached to his sword and remembers his vows of chivalry. He immediately regains himself and the damsel and tent where she lay evaporate into black smoke. The story goes on to reveal that the damsel was in fact a demon from hell. 
After this terrible shock, Sir Percival says, Since my flesh has been my master, I shall punish it. And he cuts into his thigh, drawing blood. He then says, O good Lord, take this in payment for what I have done against thee. How close was I to losing what I would never have gotten back again. My virginity. The third major knight in the quest for the Holy Grail is Sir Galahad, the son of Sir Lancelot. Unlike his father, Sir Galahad is known for his purity and holiness and can even miraculously heal people who are sick. When the knights reach the Fisher King, also known as the Maimed King since he is crippled, who keeps the Holy Grail, the Fisher King's son presents them with the ancient broken sword of Joseph of Arimathea. The knights realise that they must put it together, but are unable to do so until they finally give it to Sir Galahad. He is able to put the pieces together, and they suddenly fuse together. The sword then levitates into the air. As the story goes, the sword arose great and marvellous, and was full of heat so strong that many men hid in fear. The voice of Jesus Christ is then heard, telling them that they must go to a mythical place near the Holy Land, where Jesus lived and taught, called Sir, to return the Holy Grail to where it had come from. Gaining Enlightenment It is worth noting here that the knights have no thought that they should keep the Holy Grail for themselves or take it back to King Arthur. The relationship with a higher divine power is very clear. The knights know they are merely human beings who must obey. Sir Galahad is also commanded to heal the crippled Fisher King with a magical spear, which he does. After some adventures in going to the home of the Holy Grail in Sarah, the three knights make it. At this time, Sir Galahad, having completed his quest and preserved his purity, is taken up to heaven along with the Holy Grail. The text says, A great multitude of angels bear his soul up to heaven, and his two fellow knights saw it. Also the two knights saw come from heaven a hand, but they did not see the body. And then it came right to the Holy Grail and took it and the spear and took them up to heaven. We might say that Sir Galahad completed his spiritual cultivation or achieved enlightenment. In reading the story, there is an abundance of lessons for those who seek to take up spiritual cultivation or seek to better understand it. First, one must know the basics of what is right and wrong. Here, captured by the dangerous seven deadly sins manifested as the seven evil knights, first defeated. Second, one must have the right intention for wanting to cultivate oneself. One cannot be like Sir Lancelot, who was doing great deeds for the Queen's sake and not for God's sake. Of course, one must act for the right purpose, for a higher spiritual purpose, and ultimately for one's own cultivation and final enlightenment. Third, one cannot be deluded by the false illusions of the ordinary world, like Sir Gawain, who was deluded by the beautiful rich lady. Such illusions are very enticing, but are demons out to destroy you if they take you off your spiritual quest. Fourth, we see that Sir Galahad is already well on his way to enlightenment, for his purity and realm of mind allowed him to have the ability to heal people, to put the sword of Joseph back together, and finally to ascend to heaven. Last, the story teaches that human beings are not meant to possess the Holy Grail. Rather, it is something divine that is above them. Thus, the Holy Grail is finally returned to where it came from and where it should be. This theme of returning to one's origin is similar to the theme found in the Taoist tradition, in which the ultimate goal is to return to the original true self. This inner meaning of spiritual cultivation and seeking enlightenment is truly what is behind the story of the Holy Grail and its popularity and, to a great extent, King Arthur's popularity. 
It is what is truly meaningful and why people around the world can only look at it in awe, leading to the endless tales, stories, movies, books and so on, which are renewed in every age. A little while back you may have heard me mention that a friend of mine called Cade, who lives in Queensland, Australia, the same state as me, has started to produce a podcast called Believe, Paranormal and UFO Radio. And as a bit of a favour to Cade, I promised him that for the next couple of podcasts I would put a little ad in for him. It's not a paid ad, of course, but it tells you what his podcast is all about. So if you like the paranormal stuff, Bigfoot-style stories, UFO-style stories, all that sort of stuff, give it a listen. Anyway, here's the ad. It was just the most massive thing I've ever seen. To tell you the honest truth, I thought, well... We're the only ones left on this planet. Something's happened. We've missed something here. The fear that went in me when I seen it was just, un- like the feeling, I'd say it was fear, but I've never felt that feeling before in my entire life. It's a weird feeling, like you can't explain it when you don't know. You feel like you're being followed, but you don't know what it is. We had two to our right, another one in front of us, another one to the left. Another one just across the road, shaking the daylights out of the tree. All we get is a big red eye. I remember waking up and looking at the end of the bed, and there was a figure there, almost insect-like, and then I blacked out. My name is Cade Moyer the hosts of Believe, Paranormal and UFO Radio. Each week, I interview people who have had encounters with Bigfoot, UFOs, ghosts, monsters and the unknown. You can find Believe, Paranormal and UFO Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and most other podcast platforms. Subscribe today if you believe. And listeners, if you'd like to listen to Cade's podcast, you can find some links at believepod.com or if you visit the show notes, I have put a link there as well. I subscribe to his podcast and it's definitely worth a listen. And from the weirdhistorian.com website, a story by Mark Hartsman. Charlotte Kander, a tragic death and magnificent monument. New York's Greenwood Cemetery is filled with extraordinary headstones, mausoleums and monuments. Of the latter, one of the most intricate and tragic is that of Charlotte Kander who died after a freak carriage accident at the age of 17. An inscription on her headstone reads, So sinks from sight Eve's golden star, Lost in the watery depths of afar, Yet still does the fair planet burn, Not hopeless is our Charlotte's urn. In God's own morn her orb will rise, Once more a star of paradise. Details of her sad story were recounted in the Evening World from April 25, 1893. Charlotte was the idol of her parents and a belle of the town. Two sumptuous little parlours at the left of the entrance to the old mansion were fitted up for her own use. And there she received her admirers and entertained her friends in a style befitting her taste and social station. Every old New Yorker knows by heart the story of her death, and grandmothers have told the second generation of the fatal accident that befell her on a chill day in February 1845, which was the anniversary of her birth. She was returning from a drive through the city when at the corner of Broadway and 4th Street. The horses attached to her carriage took fright and ran away. Whether she was thrown out or jumped out, no one ever knew. 
She was born into the New York Hotel and died soon after of her injuries. The horses turned into Lafayette Place and dashed into the stable without even marring the carriage. And to this day, many women who yet retain those sad scenes vividly in mind remark in telling the story that if Charlotte had clung to the carriage, she might not have been hurt. After her death, Miss Candor's remains reposed in the dainty little parlour where she had received so many of her friends. And what was the most beautiful monument in Greenwood at the time was erected to her memory. The monument was made in Italy of Carrara marble, and as the story goes, the whole of Miss Candor's marriage portion was spent upon it. The design is rare, and there is no other monument in Greenwood that resembles it. The carving is so ornate, and the whole work so delicate, that it has withstood this severe climate only with the utmost care. The girl's statue stands under a canopy of white marble, Gothic in style, and from this two low marble wings extend forward to embrace the stone that covers her remains. To the right and left at a short distance are kneeling angels, each on a pedestal facing the monument. And if you visit the show notes and click on the link to this article, there is a photograph of this amazing monument. Our next story comes from The Amusing Planet and it's written by Korshik. The Chrysler air raid siren was so powerful it could induce rain. And for the next approximately one minute, you're going to hear the siren. So there's nothing wrong with the podcast. And dear listeners, about halfway through this recording, I actually reduced the volume by about 10 decibels so that it didn't blow your mind or pop your eardrums. The Chrysler Air Raid siren was the size of a car. It measured 12 feet long and 6 feet high and weighed an estimated 3 short tons. The gigantic siren was powered by a 180 horsepower 8-cylinder gasoline engine that drove a two-stage air compressor and a rotary chopper. The compressor pushed 2,610 cubic feet of air a minute at nearly 7 psi through a rotating chopper that sliced the air into pulses to create sound. The compressed air exited through six giant horns with a velocity of 400 miles per hour. This resulted in an incredibly loud sound of 138 decibels measured 100 feet from the siren. The loudness of this siren remains unmatched by any warning device ever produced. The main objective of the Chrysler air raid siren was to alert the public in the most jarring and attention-grabbing way in the event of a nuclear attack by the Soviets during the Cold War. The siren was built by the automobile company Chrysler in collaboration with Bell Telephone Laboratories. Bell developed a new sound generation design that used a direct flow of pressurised air through a chopper rotor and Chrysler put that design into production. Chrysler produced three popular air raid sirens based on the Bell design. 
The first generation of these, called the Chrysler Bell Victory Siren, was manufactured in the early 1940s, and more than a hundred were sold all over the United States. The early designs used a 140 horsepower engine. An improved version of the Chrysler Air Raid Siren with a 180 horsepower engine was introduced in 1952. The United States government helped selected state and county law enforcement agencies to buy these sirens and install them at key locations in populated areas. Los Angeles County, for instance, bought six of these and another ten were sold to other government agencies in the state of California. The Big Red Whistles, as they were nicknamed, were sounded only a few times during routine tests. Its scream was reportedly heard 25 miles away. The Chrysler Air Raid siren was so powerful that it was used to disperse fog by the US Navy during World War II. Fog was a serious aviation hazard at that time when aircraft were less sophisticated and the pilots relied more on visibility than on the instruments on his craft. Both the US Navy and RAF engineers experimented with different techniques of fog dispersal. The British eventually used fires to evaporate the fog away. Another method employed a series of Chrysler air raid sirens installed about 100 feet apart along the plane's approach. The sound waves produced by these great sirens caused the suspended fog particles to merge with each other and precipitate as rainfall. The major disadvantage of the sonic method of fog dispersal was the eardrum-shattering sound the sirens produced that left the men dazed and nauseated. Personnel who worked on the airfield protected their ears with cotton-covered sponge rubber. But these were not enough to keep out the terrific changes in air pressure. The noise was also harmful to animals and birds in the sky. An article published by Mechanics Illustrated during the 1940s suggested that ultrasonic waves could be employed to produce the same effect on fog without the discomfort on men and animals. The last Chrysler Air Rage siren was manufactured in 1957. Existing sirens remained in service into the 1970s, after which lack of use and maintenance caused them to fall into disrepair. Many sirens were pulled down from the top of watchtowers and buildings and repurposed into hot rod engines. Others were sold for scrap. A handful of them exist at their original location, but rusted and beyond salvage. For example, there is one in downtown Greenville, South Carolina, on top of Western Poinsett Hotel, and another atop the Rochester Fire Department maintenance building in Rochester, New York. And is as usual with this great website, if you visit the show notes and click on the link to it, there are a number of really good photographs showing the sirens in position and being manufactured. Definitely worth a look. The bandwidth of today's podcast is provided by TalkShoe at TalkShoe.com and also at Patreon.com forward slash Paul Rex. The show notes are held at Patreon.com forward slash Paul Rex. And remember, the old show notes are still at Origins.info, but early next year that site will be discontinued. That's why I'm moving all the show notes to Patreon.com forward slash Paul Rex. And if you like this podcast, don't forget you can obtain three more episodes each month by becoming a patron, a patron of the Mysteries Abound podcast. And of course, if you visit the show notes at patreon.com forward slash Paul Rex, there is a link there which will allow you to become a patron if you so desire. So until next time, everyone, this is Paul saying bye for now. Keep well, keep safe 
and thank you for listening. Bye for now, everyone. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.